Welcome to episode 22 of The History Files. We're recording this today on July 14th, which just so happens to be Bastille Day. Woohoo! Fall of the Bastille in Paris in 1789 when the 18th century committed suicide. Oops. Today, we're actually going to continue with our interview of Rand McGreal, an economics writer, uh, and going into some of the ideas of early economist Richard Cantillon and Jean-Baptiste Say. Now, let's look at some of our history headlines. July 12, 1690, Protestant William of Orange, or King William III, defeated Roman Catholic James II of England at the Battle of the Boyne in Ireland. The Glorious Revolution of 1688, which brought William III and Mary II to the throne in a power play by Parliament and facilitated by James II's favorite general, John Churchill, later Duke of Marlborough, also brought England into what has been termed the Second Hundred Years' War with France. The war which William III brought to England, or brought England into, I should say, to help his own embattled Netherlands, lasted from 1689 to 1815 and culminated in the Battle of Waterloo in June of 1815. So William and Mary, when people say William and Mary, is that the William and Mary they're talking about? Or? William and Mary College, yeah. Okay. Um, they were co- Co-regents? Um, not co-regents, exactly. Well, they were co-crown huh. uh, because they each had an equally valid claim to the throne and they happened to be married. Huh. Um, William was the son of James's daughter, or pardon me, James's sister, and Mary was James's daughter, so they were first cousins. Ah. But since it both they both went through a female line, okay. it gave them both a, an equal claim to the throne. Since they happen to be married to each other, it sort of made things easy. Huh, interesting. Okay, next headline. July 13th, 1793. French revolutionary Jean-Paul Marat was stabbed to death in his bath by royalist sympathizer Charlotte Corday. Five years later, almost to the day, on July 14th, the storming and destruction of the Bastille marked the beginning of the French Revolution. As usual, most revolutions eat their own, and though Corday was a royalist, it was in many ways the beginning of the end for the Jacobins and their reign of terror. And it also led to a really cool painting by David. Yes, it is a lovely painting. Look it up online. David, D-A-V-I-D. Uh, I think it's called, is it called Death, The Death, Death of, of Marat? Death of Marat, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. July 13th, 1863, the draft riots uh, of New York protesting unfair conscription in, New, in the Civil War began in New York City. Most of the rioters were Irish immigrants who feared that if they were drafted into the Union Army, their jobs would be taken away by newly freed slaves. The riots were as much a race riot as an anti-draft riot. Yep, nothing changes, does it? And for a movie, if you want to watch on that, based on that, is Gangs of New York. Oh, okay. Well, um, I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes. Okay, July 16th, 1918, Russia's Tsar Nicholas II and his family were executed by the Bolsheviks. Eighty years later, on July 17th, 1998, Nicholas II, the last Russian Tsar, was buried. Interestingly, to prove that the remains were indeed those of Nicholas II, his closest living relative's DNA was tested against it. That relative was Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, concert to Queen Elizabeth II. And there's a funny little story with that. Of course there is. Uh, back in 1983, I was um, very lucky to be invited, along with my family, to be part of a uh, living history performance at Sutter's Fort in Sacramento, California, for Queen Elizabeth and her husband. Uh, 
and one of the other participants was my good old buddy, Evil Roy Kester. And sitting, standing in the arms room with one foot on a box of tomahawks that had all been confiscated from us, uh, Evil Roy was having a conversation with Prince Philip, who then put his finger right on a medal this, uh, that Evil Roy was wearing around his neck. It happened to be a peace medal, reproduction peace medal, that he had purchased at Fort Ross, California. And it had, was a copy of a peace medal issued to the native Alaskans by the Russian government. It had a portrait of the Tsar. I believe it was uh, Alexander I. Anyway. What, would, what was the date on that? It would have been the like early 1800s. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and anyway, so Prince Philip puts his finger right on it and says, what's that? And Evil Roy proudly proclaims, that says I'm a buddy of the Tsar. <laughs> So we had no idea that Prince Philip was also the closest living relative to the last czar. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. July 16th, 1945, the first atomic bomb was tested at White Sands Proving Grounds in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Codenamed Trinity, this detonation was part of the U.S. Army's Manhattan Project. Years later, Project Director Robert, J. Robert Oppenheimer would recall the thoughts that had entered in his head at the moment, including the words from the Bhagavad Gita, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The test site located in the aptly named Jornada del Muerto Desert was des declared a National Historic Landmark in 1965. Well, I know what muerto means. That must mean death. What's Jornada? Journey, trail. Uh, it's a very long, I think it's like 75-mile stretch of road that was used in uh colonial New Mexico between uh, Santa Fe and uh, Doña Ana, New Mexico, just above El Paso. It's got no water. And ah. so it's called the Dead Man's Journey or the Dead Man's Trail. Oh, appropriate. Okay, July 16th, 1969. Apollo 11 took off on the first manned flight to the moon. Four days later, on July 20th, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to set foot on Earth's sole satellite. The last Apollo spacecraft flew six years later, on July 17, 1975, in a joint mission with the Soviet Soyuz spacecraft. This test project was the poster mission representing a policy of detente between the two superpowers. The two spacecraft spent 44 hours linked together, making 148 orbits at an average altitude of around 220 miles. The mission was considered a success, both technically and as a public relations exercise for both nations. Now it's my turn to tell you a story. In, uh, so the Apollo Soyuz thing was 1975. In 1976, there was all this centennial stuff going on in the United States. And uh, I happened to be in a Girl Scout troop in Vancouver, Washington. And then um, later that year, my family moved up here to the Seattle area. At one point, that troop decided they were going to do a field trip up to Seattle to go to the Pacific Science Center in Seattle. And they, and they got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, you should meet us and then we can see you again and it will be fun. So I met them, took the ferry, met them in Seattle. I was just... I don't know how old was I in 76, little, I was born in 63, do the math. Anyway, I was a kid in uh, uh, like seventh, seventh, sixth or seventh grade, and they were having a lasers exhibit at the Pacific Science Center, and there were all these scientists there with their laser projects, including a bunch of Russian scientists. And, of course, me being the little science geek that I was, I had to ask everybody questions about everything all the time. And I was talking to this Russian scientist whose English was pretty good and just peppering him with questions and being an obnoxious little science geek. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out this little enameled pin. And he said, here, you have this. And this is for you. And it was a little Apollo-Soyuz commemorative pin from the Soviet Union. I still have it. I used to wear it all the time. I was such a little nerdy, geeky kid. And I, that is one of my prized possessions, is my little enameled Apollo-Soyuz joint venture pin that I got from a Russian laser scientist. So you're, you're still a geeky kid. Oh, okay. Nerdy, geeky kid. <laughs> 30, 40-some years later. Anyway, those are our history headlines for this week. This is Hollywood. 
sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section today, I'd like to reiterate one of the books that we're going to be talking about in the, the interview today is Lost Foundation, a conversation with 18th century economist Richard Cantillon by Rand McGreal, 2013. It's available on Amazon Paper, Kindle, and Kindle Unlimited. It's a very nice book that eh, you will be hearing most more about a little later. Yeah, and also, they're also going to be talking about the rule of money, another of Rand's books. It's a solution to the global debt crisis, also 2013, and killing an idea, which is kind of the same format as Lost Foundation. Instead of talking to uh, Richard Cantillon in, rule, in Killing an Idea, he talks to Jean-Baptiste Say. So it's, it's the same kind of, you know, um, meeting of minds, history roundtable kind of format, which is kind of fun. Uh, another piece of print material that I that uh, I just stumbled across while helping a friend clean out an old room at her house the other day was a little cookbook, more like a little cook pamphlet, published in 1943 called 300 Helpful Suggestions for Your Victory Lunchbox. Now, were we in the war by 43? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that makes total sense. Anyway, it's... it's um, it's a little pamphlet that literally does have 300 helpful suggestions in it. I don't know how helpful they are. I'm going to read you one of the recipes and you decide. It's for Florida fruit. This is a sandwich spread, a sandwich filling. Half a cup steamed raisins or prunes. One three-ounce package cream cheese. Half a teaspoon grated orange rind. Three tablespoons orange juice. Mash raisins or pitted prunes well. Blend with cream cheese and orange rind. Add orange juice. Whip with a fork until fluffy. I don't want a sandwich made out of that. It sounds awful. It sounds kind of desserty. It sounds like a cake filling. But, uh, I don't know. I've had cream cheese with fruit flavorings and stuff in it. For a sandwich? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was very popular in ancient times, back in the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> Ish. Okay. Well, anyway, that's fun. Maybe I'll read some more recipes out of that in the future. If you're looking for more crazy stuff like that, fun fun recipes from the dawn of time, uh, you can get online and go to James Lilux's webpage, Lilux, L-I-L-E-K-S. He has one in particular called the Gallery of Regrettable Food. And mm -hmm. he, he has collected some of these old cookbooks like this one. There's one that's all devoted to jello <laughs> from like the 20s and 30s, which is really fun. But uh, the Gallery of Regrettable Food, and I will put that in the show notes. It's, it's, a, it's a real rabbit hole you can get lost in. So, uh, yeah, so that's our, our media recommendations. Oh, whoops, I almost forgot. A visual media or a TV media recommendation. We sort of stumbled on uh, BBC's Walking Through History, presented by Tony Robinson, where he does these walking tours and talks about history along the way in the UK. It's really a cool show, and it's really hard to find if you're not in the UK. If you live in England, you can just watch it on BBC Channel 4's webpage. If you're not, it's a problem. There's a, at least one episode on YouTube, kind of low res, but unless you... I, and I can't find the DVDs of it for sale anywhere. I don't know why BBC hasn't done that, because it's a cool show. Oh, well, time will tell. Um, we're watching it through nefarious means right now, and it's really, really fun. The first episode, season one, episode one, is the birth of industry, the start of the Industrial Revolution in uh, Derbyshire. It's really kind of cool. And talk about the lead industry, lead mining industry, and how that helped uh, Derbyshire be quite um, that, and it's just really good soil uh, and warm springs. Uh, helped Derbyshire become a very, very um, wealthy yeah. area in England. Yeah. Agriculturally, the, they had, literally, they had warm water springs that meant that they could, what was he saying? They could have like six mowings of wheat in a year or something or insane like that. At least like of, hay, of yeah. hay, yeah. Six mowings of hay, yeah. which is pretty darn impressive for that far north. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it's a really fun little adventure yeah we left off when they were at a at a complete working original flour mill on i can't remember if it was on the river y or on the derwent but uh 
it, since the thing was built in like the late 18th century or something? Late 18th. Most of the machinery is Victorian, oh, but the wow. building's been around for quite some time. Yeah, entirely water-powered. <clears throat> and, of course, he points out that the early Industrial Revolution was run by water power, mm -hmm. not by coal and steam and in, in energy. So it's kind of cool. And that, of course, is why New England in the United States became the center for industrialization is because of all the uh, rather rapidly flowing, even if they're short, but they're rapidly flowing rivers in New England, which gave rise to lots and lots of water mills, which powered lots and lots of machinery, which did lots and lots of work whether it be looms for weaving or milling machines, lathes, uh, etc., for making more machinery. Um, the firearms industry had, uh, it, the uh, as far as the Industrial Revolution goes, the firearms industry had its birthplace there. Uh, it's just fascinating stuff, and uh, it's a good watch. Oh, yeah, and the other thing I like about it, I like... I like old-fashioned machinery, and I love those old wide-belt-driven machines with the big loose, you know, loose leather belt-driven things. I mean, we've got a friend who has his whole shop set up that way. He's got, he's inherited his family's, his shop equipment, milling equipment from the dawn of time, and and this mill in in England is set up the same way. I love that with the big old leather belts. Yeah, his new lathe was made in 1918. His old one was made in like 1836. <laughs> and you were saying something about the leather trade right in the in the early 19th century of course most of the machinery and virtually all the machinery in both britain and france uh low countries and the united states uh was all run on these leather belts and britain had as you as it were sewn up the leather trade with argentina argentina always has had huge cattle herds and that's their primary export was leather um, nowadays, of course, it's beef, but, you know, all of the same. At any rate, the United States was sort of late to the party, as it were. Couldn't break into the Argentine leather uh, or hide trade. Uh, Texas really wasn't extant yet. They hadn't organized enough. And so the Yankee uh, traders uh, tapped into the California hide trade. So this is pre-1840s. Um, right. This is in the 1820s okay. and 30s and early 40s. There's a marvelous book by Richard Henry Dana called Two Years Before the Mast. It's an absolute masterpiece. Yep, we've mentioned um, it before. Absolutely. Yeah. And hide trade. He, he talks about uh, the whole hide trade, but that was because California was the only untapped source of hides that the New Englanders could access. And by accessing that, the um, these Yankee uh, tradesmen managed to bring California economically into the United States. And so the conquest of California militarily, actually naval, it was the Navy that did it, um, was sort of a formality. Uh, California was already economically part of the United States. Uh, so anyway, it's a fascinating thing as an adjunct to the, um, to the industrial revolution and just happened to use leather belts to drive yeah. machinery. Yeah. So if you're a fan of, of James Burke's old connections TV show from seventies. Yeah. Seventies. Oh, I was, yeah, it was a while ago. This walking through history is kind of like connections light. He does talk a lot about things that affect other things that affect other things, but he does it in a in a sort of geographical thing way as he's walking through an area. It's much more linear. Yeah, it's very linear, but still really really entertaining and lots of fun and he's a very good presenter. So And by the way, he's Baldrick from the Blackadder <laughs> saga. Yes, Tony Robinson. Yes, I'm sure there are some Blackadder fans out there. I would but, hope. Yes, of course you know who Tony Robinson is. He's wonderful. History lives again. Some historians think Richard Canelon was the richest person in the world uh, at that time. I think that's a world that probably doesn't include China, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, or probably doesn't go much beyond, uh, you know, Turkey. Um, but in any case, he was very, very 
wealthy. The people who stayed into the shares and rode them down to zero were very poor and they had huge debts with whoever had provided them the money, including uh, our friend John Law, who went bankrupt. Uh, okay, so, so that was his end too. Okay. Yeah, he went back to gambling uh, and lived a few more years, but very unsuccessfully. Okay, well, speaking of money, um, you note, or should I say that Richard Cantillon notes, that money is created when a new product or service is offered for sale. And obviously, in the Mississippi bubble, there really wasn't anything being offered well, there was no product. There was nothing to sell. Uh, the expectation was that they could get something in the Mississippi Delta, but it was so uh, such an emergent uh, civilization. There were no products that the natives had. Right. As, whereas a couple hundred years before, there was a fairly thriving civilization in the Mississippi Valley, but certainly by 1700 that it all collapsed due to European diseases. So even if there had been something, there certainly wasn't anything then. Right. And we're talking, even though geographically it's a large area, the French traders were only penetrating, you know, 50 miles maybe from, uh, you know, where New Orleans is today. Well, they actually had uh, had some access to the Pawnee and the Oto, certainly in, as a total side note, um, in uh, the Museum of the Governors in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, they have some interesting hide paintings that were collected by a Jesuit priest named Segesser and stored in Switzerland for the last couple hundred years. Anyway, they actually show a um, some combat between the Spaniards and their Pueblo allies or subjects and Pawnee and Oto, with claims of French troops being there. Who knows if there were actually any Frenchmen there, but this was an interesting international combat out on the Great Plains around 1720 or so, part of the Viasur expedition. Um, but that's all sort of part and parcel of this expectation of the Mississippi Company being able to have, I guess you'd call suzerainty, way into the interior of the of present-day United States when it really was very, very minor at best. So there really wasn't anything there. Now the Mississippi bubble is over in, in 1722. Okay. All right. So we're talking a similar time. Um, so let me ask you a little bit about monetary policy then. Uh, what should central banks be doing as opposed to what they are doing? <laughs> Um, well, let me uh, take you back kind of uh, in the history of money. You know, money was not uh, created by uh, governments to um, enable trade or to uh, make their population wealthy. Money. You know, if you go back to the Egyptians uh, and the, all of the monarchies in Europe, their goal with gold and, gold and silver was to pay for the monarchy's wants and primarily their um, uh, soldiers. It's not like the soldiers received payment, not much. <laughs> uh, um, but they did have to buy um, uh, stores and uh, they needed to buy uh, weapons and so that required uh, gold and, and silver. Um, monetary policy becomes an, an issue about this time as some of uh, the Royal Bank in France created by John Law was a central bank. It had authority to print money and before that time uh, uh, banks typically could um, mint their own coin. For instance, if you came back uh, from the New World with uh, 
uh, gold and silver, uh, you would go to um, you know your bank, and they would impress uh, an image of uh, the sovereign into your gold and silver, and weigh it and give it give it a value. Governments about this time wanted to take control of that process. Uh, most of the early central banks were in uh, northern Europe, uh, Sweden, uh, I think as one of the oldest uh, central banks. Uh, the, uh, the Dutch had central banks and the English, the Bank of England, was uh, an early like invention. 1690 two or four or something like that. Right. Um, you know, the interesting thing about money, it's not coins. If we were, we would never be as wealthy today if uh, we just had uh, coins and sovereigns. You need paper money and you need a central bank to increase the money supply. Today we refer to it as uh, electronic money. I mean, the money that uh, you and I have is uh, recorded on, a, you know, in a, um, in a server mm -hmm. at a bank. There is no physical money. Right, there's no paper or gold or anything else backing that up. That's just the ones and zeros. Right. and. Banks are essential to the creation of money. We often say, you know, the presses are rolling, and they are in Zimbabwe. I was, <laughs> yes. I was happy to see Zimbabwe recently uh, uh, printed a hundred trillion dollar note. Oh, ow. <laughs> yes, which is worth about what. <laughs> 25 cents or something. Nothing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if uh, only for the resale value to collectors, it's worth 25 cents. <laughs> yeah. But the way banks uh, work and the way central banks work with banks is the central banks provide the security for uh, individual banks. But in this time, if uh, a sovereign, and most lending was to uh, uh, sovereigns or the monarchy uh, to run wars or, you know, to get um, a divorce overturned by the Pope. <laughs> um, Bribes, yes. Um, and they, when the bank had a request like that, they would fulfill the request. Now, people didn't come in and take their money away, as you might think, because it was so difficult on the roads of uh, Europe uh, that it wasn't safe to have money in your home, it wasn't safe to transport money. So what they did is they wanted money transferred from one bank to another bank. Okay, So banks were able to loan to one monarch and that monarch was interested in paying off uh, debts that he might have on the uh, Tuscan plains and so he wanted that money transferred to another of those debts were coming due for buying uh, cannons or you know horses to um, attack the Italian military. Um, so this money really doesn't exist. Banks create it. In those days, it wasn't electronic. It was a register. Right, a letter of credit. Mm -hmm. right. now, isn't that what the Templars did? Right, exactly. I was going to say, didn't the Templars start some of this? They started that whole, you know, like a, I don't know, a note, you know, a problem they would carry from one yeah, place to the other. Yeah, promissory note, a letter of credit. Exactly right. Which in got fact, them a lot of power, which got them in trouble. <laughs> And that's when the Templars were overthrown uh, by the uh, uh, French crown. They were shocked that there was no money in the Templars' banks. Well, yeah. there never was any money. <laughs> there was just, uh, you know, power to enforce uh, payment from others. Um, so, 
back to Cantillon, uh, he discusses, uh, or you discuss with him, uh, how pricing occurs, how the price of, of X goods or X or Y um, service is, uh, is come to. Uh, yes, this Cantillon uh, changes economics uh, with this theory. He believed that, uh, what I like to say is, prices were negotiated. You know, uh, if you went into a, a market and you wanted to buy a couple of apples, um, you know, there could be a sign there that it's one shilling, uh, but the um, the merchant might accept your shilling, or he might be willing to negotiate a lower price. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what Catalan argued is, from a practical matter, prices are set by consumers. It takes a buyer and a seller, and if the seller is not willing, the price is going to be higher. If the seller is willing, maybe you can negotiate a lower price. This uh, is a view that is in opposition to economics today. We still believe, or I should say, our monetary system, including the ECB and the Fed, that the value of money is set by the quantity of money that's available. And they take that analogy from apple, apple sellers. If you've got a thousand apples, the price is going to be X. If you only have a hundred apples, it's going to be X divided by something. Okay. So I'm, I'm seeing it'll be two X rather if there's fewer apples. Uh, supply and demand uh, rules economics today and Cantillon uh, really changed that. He thought we shouldn't think of money as quantitative, but as qualitative. And that money was really in ex exchange for uh, what you purchased. Now, okay. you purchased $10 for something, then that was the value of the money, whatever you got for that $10. So money as a placeholder. Yes, money, what he's saying is it doesn't have intrinsic uh, value. That's very hard for governments to accept because they stamp a value on money and they work hard to maintain uh, that value. And that doesn't make the gold bugs happy either. Well, <laughs> gold bug is essentially the same thing. They, you know, it's a product. Right. It's... Uh, you know, a lot of people want it, and if the Greek crisis gets any worse, uh, the value of gold will go up. Um, so speaking of, of, of gold and, and money and stuff, what's the difference between cash and money? Uh, well, it's a currency. Let me expand. Cash is usually paper money, and currency is usually coinage. Um, but money is a temporary holding place for value. You negotiate to purchase a product and you give the purchaser so much money. The purchaser knows that was worth, you know, one jet's ski. Okay. Now, countries will tell, you know, are always working to hold the value of money constant. Right. But the smart business person realizes, okay, <laughs> that's great. I've got that. I need to take my money and invest it somewhere else, put it into a product. Okay, so so in our present day, um, <clears throat> we have uh, people fleeing a lot of um, what you might call speculative um, uh, I guess you'd call instruments. Uh, and into things like, say, farmland 
or whatever that actually, if they don't hold their value, at least there's always worth something. Hard assets. Hard assets, yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so then I guess really when you talk about financial crashes due to speculation, uh, it's mostly speculating on stuff that isn't necessary, doesn't necessarily have, or if it does have value, it's nothing like the value that people are actually willing to pay for it. Well, I mean, that's what we need to learn from Kendall on is that there are not fixed values. And a large part of his book is he's trying to prove that government can't hold fixed values. Your house is not going to be worth the $400,000 that you paid for it just because your realtor said it was worth that. <laughs> <laughs> Events are going to change that uh, situation. And uh, what it, it's true of all products because value is set by the consumer, the next buyer. Okay, so we're getting, we're right back to the economy is actually dictated by the individual choices of millions of consumers. Right, and you can see how that conflicts with the other track of economics, which is that the government can uh, set print paper bills and set a value for them, and by law force everyone to accept that. Right, because they will always find a runaround, <laughs> or, or something. So, what were, would have been Cantillon's steps to the recovery of a? crisis such as, well, such as we have today or the experienced? Well, um, let's take the, um, the financial crisis that uh, occurred in 2007, although I, I've noticed commentators are now moving the date to 2009. Uh, I got... <laughs> that's, a, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Funny how history works. Um, uh, Cantillon would have said, you know, it's a, it's a pricing issue. Okay. And, um, you know, people have, uh, lost their jobs and house values are, uh, dropping. And if you're the mortgage company, that's big trouble for you. So... Uh, I think Cantlon suggested that the mortgage company step in and uh, guarantee the house value and stop uh, stop lending, stop that uh, function of the economy, like a bank holiday. Okay. So in other words, if there is no money in circulation to buy these things, <laughs> the price isn't going to change. Well... Uh, yes, that's the case. But he's also saying that it's set by consumer um, preference. That's the value. So what you need to do is reassure the consumers that the world is not coming to an end, yeah. uh, that you don't need a fire sale on your house. Uh, and he needs to, that same lecture needs to be given to the government and uh to the uh, to the Fed and the ECB, so they don't panic. One of my uh, re uh, recollections, and I watched every minute of the financial crisis on TV. <laughs> and uh, our uh, government employees were out there, you know, fanning the flames of panic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is the stock market going to go down seven hundred points? Well. It, it certainly could. <laughs> and um, uh, could go up 700 points too. For yeah, all <laughs> yeah. But the value hasn't changed, which should have been the story. And I would Canelon would have uh, given them that, uh, uh, that story that hang on. The world hasn't changed that much. Right. We've got a, a couple of uh, rogue. Um, lenders out here in rogue buyers. Um, we can pay them off and restore the market or take them out of the market. 
It's much like, um, you know, a drug panic. Uh, you know, civilization is not falling apart just because there are a few heroin addicts down in the central <laughs> city. Now, granted, they're a danger to society and they need to be dealt with, but uh, deal with the problem. Don't make it into a bigger issue where you jail everybody and search houses and so yeah. forth. You know? Right. So now I want to ask you a little bit about, discuss your book, Killing an Idea. Uh, it's basically Jean-Baptiste Say and his um, his ideas, which had been killed, as it were, by John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Say, of course, was a leading economist in the early 19th century, and his economic theory was the dominant one from, well, certainly from before his death in 1836 until the mid-20th century when his ideas were replaced by those of John Maynard Keynes. Um, so, well, what was the idea that Keynes killed? Well, Keynes, when he uh, wrote uh, his book, uh, attacked uh, Jean-Baptiste Say, and the way he did was really by belittling him. Uh, he said that uh, Say's law was incorrect. Of course, uh, Jean-Baptiste did not have a call anything Say's law. Say's Law was a creation of John Maynard Keynes. And it's now taught in virtually all economics books as supply creates its own demand. What that means is that manufacturers, by producing products, create a demand for products, and, and that increases... Um, the supply of, of money and therefore creates an, an economy. Not, uh, not an idea that, uh, say, would necessarily object to philosophically, but from a practical standpoint, it doesn't work that way. Manufacturers do not create products until... Um, they see a market for those products and they watch the number of products that they produce very, very carefully. Uh, it's much like the term capitalism that Marx created for the free market system. It's a derogatory term. It was intended uh, to be a derogatory characterization of uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste's ideas by Keynes, and he proved him wrong by a mathematical uh, formulation, or at least he thought he did. Um, but uh, in my book, I tell a story of, or I create a very irritated, upset uh, Jean-Baptiste Say, who wants to... Uh, clear his name, set the record straight that that's not uh, what he said. And, you know, this is the way uh, economics works. And Keynes's idea of economics are incorrect. So why did Keynes uh, attack uh, Mr. Say? The reason lies in the sort of entrepreneurial, uh, very um, aggressive free enterprise system that existed in the early 20th century, particularly the 1920s. Uh, there was a lot of success at that time. And uh, Keynes, since he came from Europe, faced a situation where Europe was decimated by uh, World War I and uh, was looking for a path forward. And he was not particularly fond of the American model of free enterprise and entrepreneurial initiative, which uh, 
Jean-Baptiste Say kind of took the ideas of Richard Cantillon and expanded upon them and defined what we now call a market system. Say believed that uh, consumers were king. They determined what products would be created. Keynes was trying to make it sound like um, entrepreneurs were determining what products were created. You can kind of see the corollary between that and Marx's characterization of capitalists or entrepreneurs. Um, both that track of economics tries to give power to the business people for making choices for society. And that's why Jean-Baptiste Say would be so upset with Keynes's characterization of his ideas, because he felt that it was the community, it was the buyers and sellers, it was the shoppers who were making the decisions, not an elite group of business people. So Keynes is basically saying that no matter what the producers produce, they're going to sell it. And what Say is saying that, no, if people don't want to buy it, they ain't buying it, and you're going out of business. That's, that's correct. Um, but more than that, uh, Say is saying that, uh, you know, the business people are successful because they're receptive to consumer needs. And that's what creates the economy. Keynes, on the other hand, is saying that, uh, now wait a minute, we know these business people. They're uh, money grovers. Uh, the reason they hire people is to make money. In fact, Keynes's whole theory is based on the idea that business people want to, his employment theory, which is really what he's known for, um, is that business people hire more people because they can make more they can make money off of each person they hire. When you do an analysis, you find that that's nah, not quite the the way it works. Uh, a business, you know, has an optimum level of employees, and the market may not support more product. Okay, Keynes made it a mathematical uh, equality that the business people were looking at. If I hire one more person, I will make uh, one more dollar. If I hire two more people, I'll make two more dollars and so forth. Um, and that, you know, is just simply not uh, the reality. And the reason he said that that system doesn't work is that there was not enough money available for businessmen to borrow and, and expand. And so the government needs to step in and inject more money into the economy. Unfortunately for Keynes, uh, that's been a, tried uh, two times. Um, both unsuccessfully, you know, with the Great Depression, it did not work. And then again, in the financial crisis of 2007, uh, when the government, the U.S. government injected three trillion and Europe, I think, injected about two trillion dollars into their uh, joint economies. What happened is, sure, the banks had lots of capability to loan money, but there was no demand. There was no consumers out there that wanted to buy houses, that wanted to buy additional products. There were no business people who want, wanted to borrow money because they didn't see any consumers that wanted to buy their products. And that's why after a financial crisis, it takes so long for the recovery. So the velocity of money basically came almost to a standstill. Well, the velocity of money is actually uh, a 
term uh, coined by Keynes, and uh, it's uh, his theory on the velocity of money, and I like to think of it as two stockbrokers at either end of uh, the country, one buying a stock, you know, try a day trader, okay. buying a stock, and then another day trader who has the opposite view of the stock. See, okay, it's going up. I'm, I'm going to uh, short it. So then the stock price drops when the short activity is shown on the, on the screen. So the person who uh, will buy another uh, another share of the, of the stock, and they go back and forth, one buying, one selling, one buying, one selling. Let's say with good computers, they could probably do that a hundred thousand times a day. <laughs> that's yeah. that's Keynes's velocity of of money. At the end of the day, are they richer? In all likelihood, the stock is back exactly where it started, and nobody has made any money. They've just traded the money back and forth. And that happens in a little uh, small economy as well. You know, the baker uh, sells some cupcakes, he goes out, he gets a haircut, the barber goes across the street, buys some lettuce, the grocer goes it down and uh, buys some cinnamon rolls to take home. Okay. The money has not increased. Right, it's just gone to pay the, shall we say, the, the tally the marks in the register all the way around. And Jean-Baptiste Say uh, says uh, you need profit. Profit is this like magic pill because if each of, if each of those sales is made and somebody makes a little profit, then there's more money in the, in the system. Okay. Keynes in his uh, in his works never mentions the word profit. It's not part of our modern day uh, financial system. Neither in the Fed nor the ECB uh, tries to encourage uh, profit. That is astonishing. Well, it isn't when you think of, let's say the money moves around a government agency. Mm -hmm. It moves through. Right. <laughs> there shouldn't profit when <laughs> it's there, yes. Yeah. The government agencies, as they move money, they don't make a profit. The money moves whole. Or it, never, it is absorbed <laughs> along <right>. the way. <laughs> it gets yeah. smaller and smaller. Or, or disappears, yeah. which happens when you repay a loan. The money leaves the economic uh, system. So, uh, you know, that's the two conflicts between, um, you know, the two leading economists of the past uh, 300 years. And so the book tells uh, the story of uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste says as he makes his arguments against uh, Keynes's uh, theory and uh, not to scare off readers but there is a paragraph where we explain the mathematics of, uh, of uh, Keynes's uh, uh, theory and Keynes was a mathematician but he was a mathematician a hundred uh, hundred years ago mathematics has advanced a lot it's pretty easy to show that he was flawed in his mathematical assumptions and uh, the so-called proofs that he created in fact are not uh, proofs at all they fall flat on their face and yet that is the dominant economic theory as pursued and followed by all of the central banks and almost all of the um, the major economists in the world today uh, that's correct there is no uh, the market system only exists in the most primitive society as uh, the sole system. Now, the government can't control the market, but
but they can control interest rates and they can control how much money is spent in um, you know various uh, economies uh, but they do not uh, well I, I think the financial crisis of 2007 is the best example you know if you, you put five trillion dollars into the world economy and I'm the Chinese probably put another couple of trillion dollars uh, into the world economies as well and there's no no outcome I remember in 2007 uh, the commentators on TV saying oh this will lead to inflation you cannot inject that amount of money into the economy without causing inflation well a couple of years later we were worried about deflation, deflation exactly. <laughs> uh, and so the whole theory I mean the test of a theory is if you plant the seeds and you get corn uh, these are good seeds you know if uh, you put money into the uh, into the economy which they really didn't they put money into the government right um, it just doesn't doesn't work now didn't most of that money that was loaned to the banks the too big to fail banks just stay there I mean they didn't really they just used it for their quote liquid liquidity in quote but it didn't really actually go any further well the money never left the Federal Reserve uh, the uh, okay the banks were told that they had lending capacity well they were given credit for okay. um, let's say you know uh, two trillion dollars worth of uh, deposits t-bills located in the Federal Reserve it's kind of an interesting circle to see what is going on there um, the uh, Treasury Department is facing big debt because the economy has collapsed and their deficit is growing they're not getting as much in tax revenue as they need um, so they need somebody to buy t-bills which is how they finance the debt so they pass legislation and create uh, two trillion dollars worth of uh, uh, t-bills and they take those t-bills and they put them in the Federal Reserve okay the Federal Reserve receives the t-bills the and they do two things one is they give the Treasury two trillion dollars back or capacity to spend uh, two trillion dollars and they then tell the banks that you own two trillion dollars worth of t-bills so they use the t-bills to uh, shore up the banks if you remember at the time there were a lot of banks who didn't want the money right why because they have they'd love the money if they had some place to lend it they're having enough trouble loaning their own money that they had in deposits in fact they weren't really lending money they were out uh, shoring up all the loans they previously made and trying to find out if they're going to get repaid which is the natural reaction um, the government on the other hand has this big infusion of of cash from these t-bills that then they uh, you know can use to fund uh, infrastructure and other things so effectively they doubled the amount of cash available right which is you know which is not unusual I mean that's what you do with the fraction uh, fractional, lending. fractional lending right correct um, you know normally the government lives on money that they borrow and uh, but they couldn't sell t-bills you know who's gonna buy a t-bill at 1% interest in fact I think it went negative for a couple of weeks <laughs> yeah um, and you know the government is the only people that will buy that but the banks love it 1% let's say it's 1% right. it was really two-tenths of 1% but uh, because of fractional lending they can lend 10 times the amount that they have in deposits so the government put these funds 
into the Federal Reserve and then said, they're yours, uh, banks. And the banks then said, okay, so we're getting uh, uh, 0.2% interest. But if we lend that out, that's 2% interest. It's a little too low to be lucrative. But if it had been 1%, then it's 10% interest. Right. Okay. Uh, and the only way the banks can make that 10% interest is if they loan it out to reliable lenders. Right. In the midst of a financial crisis, there are very few reliable lenders. You only loan money to people that don't really need or it. borrowers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and funny thing about in a financial crisis, those people are not too interested in borrowing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> funny that. So... I also would like to mention your textbook, The Rule of Money, A Solution to the Global Debt Crisis. Uh, again, I have not read this yet. I very much intend to in the near future. Uh, but just flipping through it, I notice you have your, um, your rules. And these are phenomenal for their, I don't know, should I call it... Um, uh, should I call it reality or cynicism? <laughs> <laughs> or is that both? Rule of work, work equals money. Rule of money, it must be earned. Wealth rule, the purpose of monetary system is to create or grow wealth. Now let's stop here with the rule, <laughs> rule of money. Because the rule of money was broken when uh, uh, the Treasury Department created two, $2 trillion. Exactly. They did not earn it. Pulled it right out of the ether. Right. And uh, that's a big, that is a problem. That does cause inflation in the right circumstances. You, to get inflation, you have to have people willing to buy products. So rarely do you get inflation in a financial crisis unless you're a, a minor player. Um, so you mentioned earlier deflation, and it's been stated in some of the... Um, things I've read lately, that one of the reasons that they're pumping so much money into the economy is to keep from having a deflationary spiral. What's your view on that? Well, I think that's correct. The, the consumer is, um, you know, with rare exceptions, is not uh, enthusiastic about spending or particularly spending on, um, you know, what for the middle class would be luxury items, say, you know, a motorboat or a jet ski or something. And it's those icing products which really uh, drive, uh, drive an economy. Why is that? It's because there's a chain of profit that is much bigger. There's the engine manufacturer, there's the fiberglass manufacturer, there's the wire manufacturer, there's the um, generator manufacturers, there's the seat cushion manufacturer. They're all making profits that uh, increase the economy. But if the only thing that's selling are T-shirts from China, the profit is one, not in the U.S., the only profit is the retail profit of selling the shirt. So it's a much shallower uh, mm. economy. Mm. Mentioning the uh, the chain of manufacturers for, say, a, a motorboat, I'm reminded of the article, the story of who made a pencil. Right. And all of the thousands of people involved in making one pencil because you not only have the manufacturer of the pencil, but then the people who make the chainsaws for the loggers and the parts for the chainsaws and the gasoline for the chainsaw and also the truckers and the people who make the trucks and the people who service the trucks and the gasoline for the trucks. And it's just an enormous economy just to make a pencil. So the interaction, the interconnectedness of our economy is something that most people have absolutely no real concept of thus the complexity so 
Anyway, I think that'll wrap it up for now. Uh, I think I want to come back and do some more interviewing with you at a later date after I've read Rule of Money. But I do, again, want to want to promote your books, Rule of Money, A Solution to the Global Debt Crisis, uh, Killing an Idea, and Lost Foundation, a conversation with 18th century economist Richard Cantillon. All of these are available on Amazon, and I've certainly enjoyed reading them, and I've learned a great deal, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Well, thank you. I enjoyed uh, this session, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Thanks for joining us for this 22nd episode of The History Files and our interview with Rand McGreal. Next week, we will continue our interview with thoughts on the current Greek crisis and how it can be seen in its historic as well as economic context. So tune in next week for another exciting episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at scicon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash scicon or patreon.com slash badcatshows where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.